welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. This episode, Susan Fox Rogers, Learning the Birds, is being sponsored by Oblong Books. Hi, I'm Susanna Hermans, co-owner of Oblong Books, independent booksellers in New York's Hudson Valley. We're proud to sponsor this episode of Nature Revisited, featuring our local author and friend, Susan Fox Rogers. I know once you've heard Susan's interview, you'll be just as in love with her as we are. Whether you're reading her latest book, Learning the Birds, A Midlife Adventure, or one of her earlier works like My Reach, A Hudson River Memoir, or When Birds Are Near, you're in for a real treat. Conservation and appreciation of the natural world have always been important to us here at Oblong. We are deeply invested in our community. And when you live in a place as ecologically diverse and beautiful as the Hudson Valley, protecting our environment is a top priority. Along with featuring science and nature books in our stores, we also work to contribute financially to many of the great conservation organizations in our region. You can learn more about us and shop online at oblongbooks.com or on Instagram at oblongbooks. And we encourage you to connect with your local indie bookstore, wherever that may be. I'm with Susan Fox Rogers, and we're going to be talking about birding. Um, Susan's recently written a book called Learning the Birds. So Susan, let's start with what your life was like before birding and how important is nature and the natural world to you? My life before birding was dominated by the natural world. I started rock climbing when I was 15, which was early in those years of climbing. Not many people climbed. And that led to a lot of backcountry skiing, cross-country skiing, mountain biking. So I, I lived outside is the way I like to think of it. And immediately started to write about my adventures. So the natural world has always played a huge part in my life. So when did you first become interested in birds? I think I was always curious about birds, but I have to say that I I never had either the patience to stop and learn about them And I also sensed that it was going to be all-consuming once I finally gave over to it. So I have great memories of sitting on the ledges after climbing and looking down and seeing the turkey vultures circling below me. So I was always interested, but I I never knew what I was hearing or what I was seeing. 10, 11 years ago now, I was sitting in a cabin with a few of my students. I teach at Bard College. And... This bird started singing right outside the open window of this cabin in the woods. And it was, it was an otherworldly sound. The students all looked at me with their eyes wide and said, what, what is that? I couldn't tell them. So I was a little humiliated. So humiliation is a part of my story. I decided at that moment that I was going to learn the birds. And it was really the song of, of a veery, which is a, a, a thrush that's quite common here on the East Coast. And it has a song that's described as a 
spiral of white gold. That was the beginning of it. And the minute I did give over, it, it was all-consuming. It, it, everything else got a little shoved to the side, people, work, other activities, as I threw myself into learning the birds. First bird that a person sees that sets them on their path is referred to by birders as their spark bird. Pretty much every devoted birder can give you what that spark bird is. For many around here, it's the Blackburnian warbler because it's a striking little orange-chested bird. And people think, my God, this has been out here all this time, and how did I not know, and how did I not see this before? But for me, it was a song, was my spark. I love that it's the Viri. It's a rather uninteresting-looking bird, but it really has a magical song. So interestingly, in your book, you use the term conversion. That is something that happened to you, that you had a conversion. I find that term very interesting. Can you describe this? And is this something that happens to a lot of birders? It does. There's, there's a wonderful story of Frank Chapman, who was the founder of the Christmas Bird Count. He worked at the Museum of Natural History, a major figure in the world of ornithology and birds. He was working in, in a bank. He had a moment where he saw another banker and he looked at this person and thought, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be this person. He had been already quite active in the bird world, but he just gave up the bank and devoted his life to birds. So, And he describes it in this way that is really wonderful that he decided in that moment to devote his life to birds. And it's as if a, a switch has been flipped on. So one of the things that I compare it to in my book is St. Augustine, who in 386 AD also had his conversion to God. It happened in the same way. He opens the Bible and he reads a passage. It really is considered a moment where it's not just you ease into it, but a light goes off in your head where you think, this is what I need to do. This, this is what I'm destined to do. So it's almost a, like a calling, this conversion. Try to describe what it is about the bird to become part of the birding world, and would you call it a spiritual endeavor? I think it varies for many people what birding is. I think that's one of the great things about the birding world is there's a, there's a lot of texture. For some people, it is about a, a conversion that, that is spiritual, a, a kind of communing with the natural world and intimacy with the natural world. For some, I'm sure it's much more about, I just like looking at pretty things because birds are pretty. Birds are great entry into understanding the world that we live in. And the great thing about birds is that they're everywhere. They're on every continent. If you go out and say, I'm going to look at birds, there's a really good chance you'll see a bird. It delivers, as it were. It's satisfying. Even if on that walk you see a chickadee and a cardinal, it's still a delightful experience and a sense of feeling that you have spoken with the natural world. So I think for a lot of people, there's that. There's that intimacy. That's certainly it for me. There's something about the birds that also obviously the fact that they can fly and we can't is always a, a wonderful thing. There's a certain magic to that. There's also 
the sense that birds, when they are born, they are so fully who they are. There's a great sense when a Phoebe is born, a Phoebe is a Phoebe. It becomes itself. And I think as humans, we spend a lot of time sort of finding ourselves and asking questions and these big brains kind of get in the way of, of a directness of living life. And the birds really just live their lives fully. They eat, they mate, they fly. They clearly are playing at times. And I think that witnessing that kind of directness, that kind of exuberance in life, for me anyway, a joyful thing. How important is the naming of birds to birding? And how do they get their names and who gets to choose? Oh, this is a really hot topic these days in the birding world. The early explorers, Audubon, Wilson, Townsend, others, they were exploring this country and part of the exploration was to figure out what was here and they would see a bird that had that they hadn't seen before or hadn't been seen before. They would often send them to Europe, to England, where they, they were named. The founder, who's the person who shot the bird, always in, the, in these early cases, often they would name the birds for supporters, people who had paid for their expeditions. But they also are often named for the people who actually originally found them. Wilson's name is throughout there, and this is what a lot of people are now objecting to, especially when those people who are attached to the bird's name really don't deserve such a great monument to their lives. Audubon is under a lot of criticism. It's now understood that he owns slaves and that he really shouldn't be getting the kind of adulation that he gets, both through the Audubon Society and through those birds that are that are named for him. There's a lot of birds that are named for these historic figures, I kind of enjoy some of them because it's it's allowed me to go back and read the lives of those early explorers and to understand what they went through in order to both chart this land and the creatures that were out there in this land and their descriptions. Wilson describes at one point seeing a thousand clapper rails on the banks of the Mississippi and it's just wonderful to imagine that that world. I'm not 100% against all of the names that are attached to people. There is a huge imbalance between those that are named for men and those that are named for women. I found seven birds that are named for women. And then a lot of birds are named for locations where they were found, but sometimes that's terribly misleading. The Connecticut warbler, for instance, its migratory path is through the central of the country as it comes north and then comes south through Connecticut, which is probably where it was first discovered and shot. But it doesn't spend a lot of time in Connecticut. There's lots of things about the names that are quirky and a little confusing. But then there's other names that just make me joyful. The wandering tattler. Who doesn't want to see a wandering tattler? It's just, it's such a great name. I don't know. I just there's so many names of birds that I find intriguing and delightful. And so the naming is not unlike remembering the name of a friend or somebody that you've seen on the street and being able to say hello and acknowledge them. The naming to me 
feels very important. It is a part of the intimacy that I've been talking about with the natural world is to be able to say, oh, that's a rose-breasted grosbeak at my feeder, and I, and I can name that. Who does ultimately get to choose the name of the bird? There's a great example. Recently, there was a bird named the McCown's Longspur. McCown was a Confederate general, and people objected. I think it goes to the American Ornithological Union. What's fascinating is that they, they then renamed the bird. It's now the thick-billed Longspur. But what's fascinating is that birds are constantly being reshuffled, and so it's called splitting. So let's say there's, there's a bird that's seen as one species, and then they realize, in fact, there's two distinct species that have been talked, and they split them and give them two separate names. Or then there's the lumping, where they realize it's been considered two different species, and in fact, it's just one. And so this kind of understanding of what's out there is still happening. I find it fascinating that even now, we're still figuring this out. And of course, that's thanks to DNA testing and greater research and better tools to understand who's who and what's out there. So I'm pretty sure it's AOU who does that. They are the ones who are doing the renaming. After reading your book, it seems to me that there's a lot of competition among birders. If that is so, why? I think that as humans, we're wired for competition. We are curious about who's the best, who saw the most birds, who's the best birder around, and how that is measured is in very intricate and subtle ways. Sometimes it's actually in a list. You can say, I've seen more birds than you, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm a better birder. It just might mean that I've traveled more and I've hired a better guide or something like that. So the competition I'm very mixed about it, partly because it's something that you can see in the birding world and turn some beginning birders off that they're embarrassed if they misidentify something or they don't want to ask questions. On the other hand, the the competition makes people bird more actively. What happens now, and this is something that's really happened in the last 15 years, is that there's a database called eBird that comes out of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology When I go out and I look at birds, I come home and I record what I've seen. And then scientists have this data to know what birds are where and when. And this has been used in wonderful ways. So, for instance, in in California, they would know when shorebirds were moving through. And migration is, is the hardest thing that a bird does. So it needs to stop and refuel along the way. And there's lots of dangers as it goes. These birds were, were flying through California and they weren't finding fields to land in to find food. The Nature Conservancy and the Audubon Organization, they were flooding rice fields to when the shorebirds were, were moving through so that the birds had a place to land and to find food so that they can continue on their journey. And I just find that to be a wonderful use of this kind of data that people are out there actively putting in what they're seeing and when they're seeing it so that this can be predicted. So these scientists have all these people basically working for free gathering data for them. And so they have more data than they've ever had before because people are excited about their own lists and going out there and finding the birds and and inputting it into their system. So it's really quite a remarkable thing that has ballooned in in the last 15 years, really. 
So what are some of the other changes that you hope to see in the future for birding? I have a lot of difficulty projecting into the future, but there's things that are happening culturally that I think are really important, that it historically has been a white, upper-middle-class, male-dominated world. There are more women who are guides. There are more women who are in the field. There's more people of color in the field. There's a wonderful celebration of Black Birders Week that happens. There's a, a week of celebration of the LGBTQ community that happens as well with a sense of welcome for all people into this world. Because the truth is, once you have a decent pair of binoculars, that's all you need. It's something that really is available to anybody and you don't have to be in the country Central Park happens to be one of the best places on the East Coast to bird because a lot of birds stop there on migration. It's known as a wonderful spot to look at birds. It really is an endeavor that is available to all and should be available to all. Technologically, there's, this, there's an app that has come out in recent years called Merlin where you literally press a button and it says looking for bird song and it starts to tell you who's singing around you. Now I have friends who are outside a lot but not really birders who think, oh, what's that? And rather than sending me a text saying, what's the bird that sounds like this? They hit the app and they write to me and they say, hey, there's a Blackburnian singing. It's really a wonderful feature that people, beginning birders, can really now not be so overwhelmed by bird song and not knowing what's out there, they can begin to use these tools as a way to get into the birding world. There again, after reading your book, I realized that birding has a very interesting language and terminology. I would like you to share some of the origins and meaning of some of the more common words or phrases. You talked about the spark story, but what are some of the others? I think that the language of birding is something that I enjoy. I realized that when I entered the birding world, it was a world with its own language, its own ethics, its own history, its own heroines and heroes. And so the language to me, obviously, because I'm a writer, was very important. So there's the spark story. We talk about twitching, which is something I've done a couple of times and probably will never do again. But twitching is when you drive or walk or go someplace with the intent of seeing one rare bird. When you twitch, you either find the bird or you dip. You don't find it. There's a lot of dipping for twitchers. We talk a lot about a life bird, which is the first time you see a particular species for the first time. What I do with the life bird is I write in my guidebook where I was, the date, and who I was with at the time so that I can remember. A lot of people can tell you how many life birds they've seen or how many species they've seen that are in their life list. Um, we go owling, which means going out at night, listening for owls, which is really quite a magical thing to do because nobody else is really out there at nighttime except for you and the owls. Then the basic words of birding, birder, it's not, it's not a phrase that I love actually amongst all of these, but it's different from bird watcher. And I, I looked up actually in thinking about this question, it, the difference between somebody who's a bird watcher and a birder. And someone wrote that 
a bird watcher is someone who takes a walk and notices the birds, and a birder is somebody who goes out to look for birds and walks. So birder is, is a much more active than bird watching, which is a casual, maybe uh, coincidental kind of part of your life, whereas birding is in, intentional, active, and it definitely is drawing a younger crowd, and so that sort of active side of it is, is coming out more and more, I think. You mentioned binoculars before, and I have never been able to find a set of binoculars that seem to give me a clear and focused look at birds. So how important are binoculars, and how does one find the right set? Well, we need to get you some good binoculars, because (laughs) (laughs) binoculars change everything. Put your binoculars to your eyes, and everything settles. It's a meditation, because all you're doing is look at birds, and you can see the eye and you can see the eye ring and you can see the feathers and if the light hits it just right, you can get some color. So good binoculars are magic. I agree that it's hard to find a good pair of binoculars and what I did is I drove to Cape May, New Jersey, which is bird central on the East Coast and I went to the Audubon shop there where they had an extraordinary array of binoculars and they just opened up the case and I tried one after the next until I saw something that was sharp, that fit well in my hand, that wasn't too heavy, because if you bird for hours, it it actually starts to cause some strain on your neck. To have binoculars that you love, and this is the way I feel about anything that I do, that, that you should always buy the best equipment that you can afford, because if you have good equipment, you'll use it. If you buy something, you're not going to use it, and it won't make it pleasurable. But there are wonderful binoculars out there that cost three, dollars $400. Starting out, it, you don't have to spend thousands of dollars. Although, the way I think about it, I spent $2,000 on a pair of binoculars. I use them every single day for over 10 years. I'm not, I'm not really worried about splurging in this way because then once you have your binoculars, there's not a whole lot else you need to buy. Birding has a very colorful history. Can you share with us a bit of the lives of the men and women who helped to shape it. Let's start with Florence Miriam Bailey. I think of Florence Miriam Bailey as my aunt or my godmother or something. I just, I love her. Lived at the turn of the century. Her brother was also very active in the natural world at that time, was part of the Hayden expedition that went to Yellowstone that then made that into a national park. So she grew up with the natural world at her door in northern New York State, went to Smith, and became very active in the protection of birds because all these Smith girls were wearing hats that were filled with bird feathers. And she felt that if she took the girls out and had them see the birds alive in a bush, that they would rather see them alive in a bush than parading around on their heads on, in these hats. So she worked, she worked hard for the protection of birds, lived out west for a time for health reasons. She wrote guidebooks, and she's credited with, with writing one of the first guidebooks very much directed toward women and children. 
she really has such a devotion to the birds at a time when women were not out there doing this, was sleeping in tents in the desert in Arizona and cooking her meals on a camp stove and wrote, wrote these guidebooks, explored along with the men and really just brought, brought this world home. So she's one of my favorites. And one of her foremothers was Harriet Mann Miller. She started birding when she was 49, which is when I started birding. So I took great inspiration from her. And she wrote 11 books after about birds. I think she wrote m- many more than that. She wrote over 700 uh, newspaper and magazine articles. She was a real powerhouse. And she she really had, must have had a spark bird and a, a conversion moment because she not just wrote about the birds, but she brought them into her home. And she would have little little notebooks about her birds that she would let free to fly around the house. And she would write down in the notebooks what the birds were doing and the songs that they were singing. And she had a little dossier on every single one of her birds. And so she also brought the birds alive, I think, for for women in particular. The two of them were the first women who were brought into the American Ornithological Union, which had been dominated by men up until that point. You know, Frank Chapman, for instance, who I talked about with his conversion moment, a wonderful character, but around here, the, the person who I turn to the most is John Burroughs because he did live in the Catskills. He was a rock star in his day. He wrote 22 books, and everybody knew him. Florence Marion Bailey invited him to Smith to speak to the girls. He was sort of the old man of the mountain. He was friends with John Muir and Henry Ford. He really was happiest, though, in the mountains, surrounded by trees and being in the woods. So Burroughs, I think about a lot because he tromped around in many of the places that I've tromped around, going up Slide Mountain, looking for the Bicknell Thrush. And then learning about our early explorers, Audubon was a real character, not a good guy. I mean, it wasn't just the slave owner. He was careless with other people's money. He was always in debt. At the time, his, his wife had to work in order to support the family, which he was constantly abandoning as he went off to look for birds. So he was vain. He always dressed up, even to go out looking for birds. He's known mostly because he was one of the original people to draw in such an extraordinary way the, the birds on this continent. You know, the, the Audubon organization took on his name, so I think that that's really, really why he's so well-known and I would prefer that the organization be called the Wilson Organization because Alexander Wilson was a much more interesting and sympathetic character in my mind. He was a poet, also set out to chronicle the birds as Audubon did. They they met briefly in Kentucky, and there was certainly a rivalry between them about who was going to pr- produce the first guide because these were very expensive to produce, and they were looking for supporters who would buy copies of their folios Wilson died young, had a very kind of poetic soul, for lack of a better way of putting it. I find him to be a a very moving character. Besides the bird people who dominate the the bird world, I'm I'm also, as I researched this book, very intrigued by those characters who are known in a larger historical way. FDR, who lived his country house, was in Hyde Park, which is just down the river from me. He was a birder. I went down to the archives and held his notebooks. It was very moving for me to realize that he had this uh, devotion as well. 
And famously, on May 10th, 1942, we were in the middle of the Second War, of course, and he wakes up at three in the morning and goes off to Thompson Pond, which is a place that I burn regularly, to listen to the Dawn Chorus. He was surrounded by other birders and people who were enthusiasts, and they sat at Thompson Pond and listened to the Dawn Chorus. And feeling that in the in the area where I bird is, is really wonderful. FDR would drive out Cougar Island Road, which is where... I bird almost every day, and I think about him sitting there in his car and watching the birds go over. So uh, it, it adds a texture to the land and to, to my understanding of the birds. So let's talk about the songs of birds. Do all birds have their own special voice or song? And how important is the bird's song to identifying it? Yeah, well, since it was a song that brought me into the bird world, that song of the Viri, which I hope people will listen to (laughs) after listening to this podcast. Yes, birds all have their own songs. Some birds learn their songs. So, for instance, a white-throated sparrow that learns its song from other white-throated sparrows in northern New York State might have a slightly different song than a white-throated sparrow who learned his song in northern Maine. There are a lot of bird songs that sound quite similar. There there are some songs that are easily confused, lots of variations on songs. For instance, the chickadee has, they've recorded 64 different vocalizations. Yes, you can learn the songs, but there will always be another song that you've never heard before, which is which is really great. Even the best birders probably still have things to learn and hear and see and know that they've never had before. So it's an endless fascination. The complication is, for instance, the warblers who migrate through where I live in the spring, they, they're all singing. They're, they're heading off to establish their territory and to breed, and they're singing away. And so I have a month to learn them and their songs. And then they disappear for 11 months. And when they come back through in the fall, they're not singing as much because they don't need to. The bird songs, to me, is one of the, it's the magic of of birding. And around here, if I didn't bird by ear, I wouldn't be birding because once the leaves come in, uh, it's very hard to find a bird singing. Uh, Right now I'm listening to a wood thrush that's, has not stopped singing since dawn. I haven't seen a wood thrush in weeks, but I hear it every single day. And so I know that it's out there. So the song on the East Coast is incredibly important. It's how I bird when I'm out kayaking in the Tivoli Bays. It's almost entirely just hearing the songs of the marsh wren or the swamp sparrow that lets me know those birds are there. I think that the songs too add a layer of, of memory into a landscape. So I know that whenever I smell a lawnmower that has just cut grass, I just go right to my grandparents' summers that I spent with them in the Indiana Dunes. That, that smell can take you back to a place. What I realized is partly why that Viri spoke to me so much is that the Viri is one of the birds that would be singing at dusk when I would walk out at the gunks after a day of rock climbing. So I sort of associated it with those early days of being outdoors and the cliffs. It was the music that was accompanying me on my way home. And so the songs to me are more than half of birding, really. 
So I want to go back just a little bit to the era of feathered hats, because I think that most people don't really realize how prevalent that was at a, at a point in time, that everybody who was anybody had a big hat with plume feathers. And you don't see any today. Nobody wears a feather. Can you describe just how prevalent it was? You know, if people wear a baseball cap, that's pretty much it these days. It's hard to imagine that this was, this was the fashion. And hats were so big. They were 36 inches in diameter at one point is something that I read. And for those who remember the telephone booth, they were so wide that women couldn't wear them and go into a telephone booth to make a phone call. And in tea rooms, tables had to be spaced further apart so that the hats wouldn't bump into each other. Frank Chapman has this passage where he's walking down Fifth Avenue and looking at the women in their hats and identifying all the birds that are part of that hat, coming up with 35 species by the time he's walked to his office. And it's just horrifying to think about. And it's not just that it was a fashion and it put a little dent into bird populations. Some birds almost went extinct. These birds were being slaughtered, millions. You know, in 1885, it was reported that five million birds were slaughtered for just the hat industry. In 1905, laws were actually put to protect these birds. Audubon hired this guy named Guy Bradley to protect the birds in the Everglades, which was really where a lot of this plume hunting was was going on because that's where the birds are. But also, it was a totally lawless land. He arrested his neighbor and his neighbor's son, and he was shot. And so the news of his death, he was sort of our first martyr for bird protection, traveled north. Once people heard about this, it, it really galvanized many people to to stop women to stop wearing these hats. So there was lots of discussion about do we need to get women to stop wearing hats, which is what Florence Marion Bailey was advocating for, or do we need to regulate the plume hunters and tell them that they can't hunt? And some were saying, no, we, we have to tell the milliners that they can't make these kinds of hats. So it was actually pressure on all ends that, that ended up working well to eliminate this. And then in 1911 was probably the most important and famous act for bird protection, which was the Migratory Bird Protection Act. I've been told that birds are a real indicator of how certain ecosystems are doing and how strong is the tide of the extinction of birds. It's dramatic. Birds birds are a real indicator because some of them are very fussy about what they eat, where they breed, uh, where they can stop. The minute one of those things is altered, they may not they may not survive. They may not be successful in breeding. Where I live, one of the great success stories, and this is an interesting thing to think about, is the bald eagle and the ospreys that have come back, and you can't go out on the Hudson River without seeing a bald eagle. In order to do that, we had to do one thing. We had to eliminate DDT from the environment. It's not always that simple, though, to to save a bird. Usually there's 
several factors that play into it. It's about habitat and it's about food source and migratory path or breeding ground or, you know, it's a combination of things that is challenging the bird. And I've seen certain species go down even in the short time that I have been birding, birds that I don't see as frequently. And I try not to catastrophize. I just say, this is a cycle and they'll come back. But one of the ways that we know about populations moving is through the Christmas bird count, which is an annual event that started off small and is now big. I I participate in three of them. And for 24 hours, birders go out in a very particular area and and count birds. And the data from that day is important, but only in relation to the data from the years, prior years. So every year when I go to the count after the Christmas bird count, and there are people there who've been birding since the 70s, and you you go around the room and people say what they've seen and give their numbers. And for instance, when you get to the rough grouse, everybody says, they haven't seen any. And somebody will say, do you remember when every sector had rough grouse? So it's a species that's gone from around here. When FDR drove out to Thompson Pond at 3 o'clock in the morning, they heard many whippoorwill, they wrote. I've never heard a whippoorwill around here. So it can be overwhelming and it can be almost too much to bear at times thinking about how these populations are going down. So what would you suggest to someone who, after listening to this interview, is interested in learning more about this fascinating world of birding. How how would you suggest someone start? Well, uh, I would do two things. I would buy a good guidebook. Both the Sibley Guide and the Kaufman Guide are wonderful guidebooks. I would buy a decent pair of binoculars. I would go outside and just start to pay attention, maybe put up a bird feeder, and, and then I would I would join a bird club. They are everywhere. If you just go online, bird club near me, there'll be an Audubon group or some other local club to join, which is what I did. I joined the John Burroughs Natural History Society. I started going on their walks, and I was totally lost on the first couple walks, that people would be saying, oh, there's a black Bernian, there's a black-throated green warbler, you know, it's like, and I, I'd never even heard of these birds. But I kept going, I wrote everything down, and I went back and I looked in my guidebook and I, I thought, even if I wasn't able to see something, if somebody said that that, that, there, that bird was there, I then went and looked at it and thought, okay, this is possible. So there are many, many personal stories in your book about encounters with special birds. Can you share with us the special importance and relationship you have with the rusty blackbird? I love this question because, as you say, there's lots of incredible birds that I have encounters with in in this book. There's the long-eared owl and there's the baby boreal owls and there's the bristle-fied curlew and, you know, just incredible birds. And the rusty is a kind of ordinary bird. It's a it's a black bird with a white eye. It's a bird that migrates through the Hudson Valley. And the first time I saw it, I was with Peter, who's a, a wonderful uh, birder and was really my guide to this bird world for the first three years that I birded. And when he pointed out the rusty blackbird, it was something that I didn't, even know existed, he said, look closely, this bird will be extinct in our lifetime. And that just really 
went to my core. So I decided to really devote myself to the Rusty. There is a Rusty Blackbird working group, other people who feel similarly about this ordinary bird that is on the verge of extinction. It's very fussy about where it breeds in boreal bogs, and it's fussy about what it eats, like snails. So the boreal bogs are being destroyed in various ways. It has less habitat, and the bogs are contaminated, which also challenges the birds. This is one of those species where there are many things that are working against it. In addition to the fact that it's not a charismatic bird, so everybody knows the story of the comeback of the bald eagle or whooping cranes that were raised and were taught to fly and to migrate. And who doesn't love a whooping crane? I mean, it's a great big white bird. Rooting for the underdog is is part of my affection for the rusty blackbird. It's also, I think, though, that it's a bird that only a birder could love situation, just in the way that only certain birders love sparrows. And it's also a bird that when I see it, I'm in a place that I love. If I'm seeing a rusty, I know I'm someplace where I might also see lots of other extraordinary things and I'm going to be bitten by mosquitoes and it's going to be a chorus of red-winged blackbirds and and it'll be a wonderful place. So that combined makes me fond of the of the rusty blackbird. So would you say that the, the rusty blackbird is your favorite bird? It is my favorite bird. <laughs> I know we're not supposed to have favorites. We're supposed to love them all, but yeah, it's my favorite bird. (laughs) How much has birding really changed your life and become a part of your identity, a part of who you are? A lot. (laughs) So being a birder means that everywhere I go, I'm paying attention and listening to birds. I'm always attuned to out there and who's singing and who's flying. And the world is just richer as a result. And so because the world is richer, I'm happier. There's no other way of putting it. I feel more content on a day-to-day basis. I'm much more patient than I was because patience is, is key to seeing the birds, and being a part of the natural world. You can't rush it. So in all aspects of my life, it has, it has changed my energy toward what I do and, and how I live on a day-to-day basis. And then there's the interesting thing that my eyesight has gotten better because I'm exercising my eyes every day trying to see the birds. So <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are hidden upsides to birding as well. The, the thing about being the the bird lady, is that my students or people I know from town, every day I get a text from somebody saying, hey, what's this bird? Or what's this song? Or somebody asking me a question. And it makes me realize that everybody is paying attention in one way or another, and they want to know. And it's it's kind of, that's heartening. People who are making that effort, it gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Susan Fox Rogers about birding and that you will check out her new book, Learning the Birds. 
Nature We Visited would like to thank Oblong Books for sponsoring this edition and that you visit them either at one of their two stores or online. The music for this episode is The Birds, Stranger in a Strange Land. You can follow Nature Revisited on Instagram, YouTube, or our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan, and I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. Nature.